We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. Listeners, we've got a two-part episode coming your way that I will tell you about momentarily. First, as always, wanted to give a shout-out to our presenting chess education sponsors, Chessable.com. They've got courses to help you with any aspect of your game that you'd like to work on. Some new ones by Sam Shanklin, Maurice Ashley, so many legends making courses. So I'll link to their What's New page as well as to some of my favorites, which include courses like the Woodpecker Method, the Checkmate Patterns Manual, and the list goes on. So just be sure to go to chessable.com, take a look around and find something to help you work on or enhance your enjoyment of this great game called chess. Now, today's guests are two different people in the global chess community doing things to help uh, grow, promote, and make the game safer. So I kind of wanted to spotlight, there's so many unsung heroes in the chess world, so many people donating their time, and I wanted to tell the story of two people who are doing important things to make chess more enjoyable and safer for everyone. So first up is Amelia Castellau. Amelia is a history grad student, a chess historian, a photographer, and she has now co-founded an initiative called the Women in Chess Foundation. Its goal, as you will hear Amelia discuss, is to Make sure there's representatives at every chess tournament that takes place uh, to help ensure a self, excuse me, a safe playing environment. So it was great to hear Amelia's story, and we talk about other stuff as well. Uh, following Amelia's interview, you can catch an interview with Craig Dubose, and Craig is running a chess tournament in Sligo, Ireland. You can look up the Sligo Chess Tournament. It's in early February in 2024, and it's just a five-round tournament, you know, what they call a typical weekend tournament, but Craig is really working hard to promote the tournament and try to improve conditions. He did a he commissioned a documentary about last year's event. So he's just donating a lot of time to try to put on one good tournament. And I wanted to help share his story. Obviously, if you're looking for a vacation in Ireland um, or if you live in that part of the world, uh, the tournament sounds well worth checking out. So Sligo Chess Tournament, uh, early February 2024. And there's you can also check out the documentary wherever in the world you are. So Again, there's so many people doing so much for chess and unfortunately putting out one episode or so a week. I can't tell everyone's stories, but in this case, I'm excited to help amplify the voices of a couple people and let you guys uh, hear from our two members of our global chess community. So as always, uh, timestamps are in the show description, both of the times of different guests, as well as the topics discussed and any links referenced. Speaking of links, while I have you here, don't forget to subscribe to my free weekly chess newsletter, the Perpetual Chess Link Fest. You can Google that or um, I'll link to that as well. And without further ado, I will get you to our interviews. So first up is Amelia Castellau and second is Craig Dubose. Thanks for listening slash watching. And here they are. And we are here with Amelia Castellau. She is a chess historian, a grad student, and a photographer. She has a particular interest in the Soviet era. She's also collaborating with Mr. Daji, who those of you who are on Twitter know well, and others may have heard on previous episodes or 
behind the scenes of the Chicken Chess Club. Anyway, they're launching an important new initiative called the Women in Chess Foundation, and I'm excited to discuss that as well as the rest of Amelia's life in and out of chess. So let's welcome Amelia Castello to the show. Welcome, Amelia. Hi, nice to see you. Yeah, nice to nice to chat. We've, of course, corresponded online a bit, but one of those uh, online friendships where we've never connected in person. And I just found out that you're American, Amelia. So um, <laughs> because I knew that you are a grad student in Vienna, Austria, um, a, his, a history grad student. And correct me if I say anything incorrect along the way. But uh, so how did you end up in Vienna? Yeah, so um, I am American. I'm from New Orleans. I did my undergraduate at the University of Notre Dame uh, in history and global affairs. And then um, afterwards, I didn't want to get a real job. And so I decided to go to grad school in Europe. Um, and I applied to a bunch of uh, schools and decided to come to Vienna because I had never been here before and wanted to live somewhere new. So that is how I ended up here. Excellent. And you're enjoying life there? Oh, I love life here. It's yeah. uh, really underrated for sure. I think everyone should come here. Yeah, I as I briefly said to you before we were recording, I only spent a couple of days in Vienna, but it's a charming city. Although, of course, New Orleans has a special place in my heart as well. So, um, but let let's bring this to chess, Amelia. So, I mean, we've got a lot to talk about because you've got a wide range of interests under the umbrella of chess. But the news of the day, as it were, is we're recording this on October sixth, and in a, if all goes according to plan, next week you and Mister Dodgy will be launching a new initiative called the Women in Chess Foundation. So what was the, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but I'll ask you anyway, what was the impetus for this project? Yeah, so I really kind of started getting into the chess world last summer when I wrote a, a paper on the uh, implications of uh, chess in international diplomacy, like Soviet era chess. Um, and that's ultimately how I met Mr. Dodgy and Lula Robs. Um, and in March, when the uh, article came out about Alejandro Ramirez, um, not only that, but from my experiences going to tournaments in throughout kind of the six-ish months that I had really started doing like chess photography and stuff. I went to Vicon Z and um, I also went to Tepe Siegman and uh, a few other tournaments and just seeing the way that women were not even really present at these high-level tournaments, really barely, and to see the way that the women were treated at these tournaments. Then with the Alejandro Ramirez thing coming to light and Jen giving her statement about that. Dodgy and I had very long Google meetings about how we could possibly begin to solve the problem, find a way to kind of create a community outside of the institutions, outside of already established clubs and federations where women could come together and feel like they could safely talk about what they had gone through and have an actionable thing to do about the problem as well. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> Obviously admirable. And um, first of all, I mean, it's, it's disappointing to hear. Obviously I know that Lula has had her own negative experiences and we're referring to Lula Roberts, who um, pretty well-known Twitch streamer, obviously um, also I interviewed her after the Olympiad. So some of you listening may have, uh, may have heard that. Um, so she had some negative experiences, but I'm disappointed to hear that even in like a, a quite limited time traveling to international tournaments. So it wasn't just stuff that you were hearing from other the the not enough women that were there, but also stuff that you witnessed personally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, stuff that I witnessed personally and also stuff that happened to me, just the interactions that I had with men at tournaments, even though I wasn't playing just kind of the disrespect that I received, like being a photographer there, um, was really quite shocking, considering that, like, chess should be one of the safest sports in 
the world considering that like it's really just you know an over the board game you're thinking you're not talking much but then you have these then i i had these experiences with men where i just felt like watched almost at these tournaments especially being alone as a female i generally felt unsafe uh at tape Siegman, i was with dodgy and also peter schwidler who i'm close friends with and like I felt safer there because I had friends, but when I went to Tepe Sigmund, I was alone and it was a, it was an odd experience um, to say the least. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but I can't say I'm shocked, unfortunately, based on obviously recent news and just having grown up in the chess world and, uh, you know, seen a few things myself. I do like to think that the fact that an initiative like this is even coming into being to me, uh, suggests, OK, things are slowly moving in the right direction, but progress never comes fast enough. And obviously you, you and Lula and those who have encountered much worse should never have to experience these things. So when it comes to the foundation, so you want women to have a safe space. But I, from my understanding, you guys also have some sort of concrete initiatives uh, in mind. Could Could you discuss what those are, Amelia? Definitely. So our first big initiative and the main one that we're focusing on is our advocacy initiatives, which hopes to put an independent advocate at every single chess tournament so that people who do experience misconduct can, um, rather than maybe go directly to a tournament organizer or an arbiter, which can be a really scary experience, they can go to someone who has been trained to understand and provide the correct resources to survivors and um, work with them to come up with a plan for how they want to move forward. And then beyond that, hopefully in conjunction, we uh, are working with clubs and federations to do safe play guideline reform. So um, because as much as the advocacy initiative is an attempt to, um, in a way, deter um, misconduct from happening, but also put those systems in place so that uh, survivors are prioritized if they do choose to report um, and having that support system there. What really is going to change things is if clubs and federations put in place those prevention policies, those reporting mechanisms, um, in order to ensure that there is a clear process that is and that knowledge is available to survivors uh, should they choose to report and having it be a survivor oriented policy is, is really what we're aiming for. Um, And lastly is marketing women's chess. We always, well, Dodgy and I had noticed that we really get to know male chess players and, we don't necessarily get to know female chess players the same way. So um, helping with marketing women's events, giving clubs and federations kind of the basic baseline tools on, on how to do that and do it effectively. Um, we have a lot of goals for the future, but that's like our three main initiatives at the moment. That's amazing. Um, and this is a nonprofit we should say. And, mm-hmm. and, what do you guys have in mind for how the training would take place? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who who feel like they'd like to pitch in. Um, how how would a person interested go about that, go about being trained? Yeah, so uh, it's pretty simple. Essentially, you would go on our website that we are launching on Monday, womeninchess.com. And we have an advocacy tab. And in that tab... Uh, you can learn more about what we teach for the advocacy initiative. So we teach what advocacy is, um, understanding how trauma and misconduct show up in chess compared to other workplaces, um, as well as like safety planning and crisis intervention and other advocacy skills. If someone wanted to become an advocate, they could go to our Become an Advocate page and fill out the form. Um, there are some eligibility requirements, like you have to be 18 and have, you know, an interest in chess and, 
but really advocates can be anyone. It could be a mom who takes her children to chess tournaments or uh, a regular player at a club. Uh, we want it to be a, a wide range of people so that we have a diverse kind of group being advocates. And once you kind of sign up, we'll review the application. You, All of our advocates do have to be background checked. Um, so we'll go through that kind of administrative process and they'll pick a day for training. Uh, we have four dates in the near future. So October 15th, November 5th, November 18th, and December 3rd uh, are our future advocacy trainings. Um, we'll sign you up, get you all in check for everything and you'll get trained. And afterwards, when all the paperwork is processed and through and you've uh, done your final assessment, you'll receive a certificate of completion and you can be an advocate. And we're hoping to work with clubs and federations to relay that information to them as well, saying, you know, this person is an advocate in your area or in your local club. Um, if you could please publicize that information so that people, uh, Others can know about it and reach out to them if they need. Uh, we'll have that information available to them. And we also have that information on our website. So you can find an advocate directly through our website as well. Okay, that, that's excellent. And so you say it can be a parent, it can be a local club member. Can it be a participant within a tournament? Yes, like, of course. Okay, just making sure because on the one hand, I understand. Like on the one hand, obviously that means you're not going to be available every minute if you're playing. But on the other hand, it obviously greatly reduce. I mean, uh, increases the availability of advocates, and in my mind, makes it much more, uh, much more likely that that there will be one at every tournament. Which certainly I uh, share share that goal. Um, and the website, we should say, so it should be live by the time this comes out. So and what about in terms of, you know, hopefully knock on wood, this doesn't happen or, you know, happens with decreasing frequency. But uh, there's an incident that wants to be reported. How does the participant know who the advocate is? Yeah. So um, by working with tournaments, we um, are in a way mandating that at the beginning of each round, the tournament organizer during the brief announcements that happen say, uh, hey, this is the advocate at this tournament. Um, should you need anything, please reach out to them. Uh, also, we're planning on having an identification that advocates can wear during tournaments uh, as well. Okay, that's great. Um, excellent. Well, obviously, um, you know, I'm on board. I going to do the advocacy training now now that i uh know about it because i mean we need to cast a wide net right i mean there's there's so many tournaments and they all have different scopes so i'm sure the more people trying to trying to help out the better um is there anything else because amelia i want to talk about your other chess related interests as well while i have you here so is there anything else in terms of the women in chess foundation that listeners should know up front uh yeah i really like want to stress that obviously the women in chess foundation we are focused on improving the environment of chess and chess tournaments uh for women but we really also are for everyone we want chess to be safe for everyone not you know just women the lgbtq community minorities um and men as well you know there are possibly some instances that we may not know about uh in terms of men experiencing misconduct, but that is way more underreported than women. So um, if you're a man and want to become an advocate, like that is absolutely something we would love. And this community is really just open for everyone. And we're hoping to not only empower women, but make chess safer for everyone. Okay, excellent. And so the main things in terms of like actionable items, if people listening want to help out is to go to the website and possibly volunteer to be an advocate. Um, and if there's anything, say someone's listening and for whatever reason, they feel like maybe they don't get to enough tournaments um, or just logistically unable to to volunteer to be an advocate, is there anything else they can do to help uh, support the this endeavor? Yeah, so they can register to be a volunteer, um, but also something about our advocacy program is that 
Uh, it is available for people uh, remotely and online. So if you want to talk to an advocate, you don't necessarily have to be going to a tournament. You can request to speak to an advocate uh, just uh, over the phone or you know over Zoom, and we can set that up for you as well. Okay, sounds good. Excellent. When we come back, we will hear Amelia talk chess history, chess photography, and more. We'll be right back. And we are back. Well, Amelia, let's talk about uh, chess a bit more broadly. So I read that you got into it as a kid, but it sounds like your interest really took hold in the past couple of years. And now you've kind of zeroed in on chess history, aside from this initiative that we just discussed. But first of all, how did you get into chess generally? Yeah, so I went to chess camp in when I was like, I started playing when I was four. My dad taught me how to play. Um, I really got into it when I went to chess camp in fifth grade. Uh, but in New Orleans, there's not a huge like chess community. Uh, it's only popping up like very recently. But when I was growing up, there weren't any tournaments or anything that I could really participate in. So it kind of went on the back burner and I did other things. Um, but when I moved to Vienna, uh, I moved like in July and I didn't start school until October. And I was a grad student, so I didn't have a job and I had a lot of free time. So I did a lot of reading and I really got into reading about Soviet chess history and, you know, Bobby Fischer and uh, the 1972 World Championships. And I just was so intrigued kind of by because I I go to the Diplomatic Academy and I love diplomacy and kind of how international relations works. And I was really intrigued about how diplomacy was kind of showing up in these places, but not necessarily talked about or pointed out by anyone. And so I uh, started writing an article for Epic Magazine. It's a history magazine um, and published that and uh, also went to my first chess tournament. I went to Sitges uh, in Barcelona, um, which is where I met Dodgy and Lula. And that was kind of my throwing into the deep end of of how I got into chess. Amazing. Yeah. And and so could you say a bit more about what you wrote about for um, for the History Magazine? Yeah, of course. So I wrote about how um, the Soviet Union essentially used chess as a means of diplomacy during the Cold War and how it was a really important line of communication to the U.S. Um, really, it kind of through like the chess tournaments that the USSR would organize as well as the U.S. Um, when these players were were there you also had um sightings of of politicians both from the ussr and the us and um when you look through kind of the priorities of this these politicians it was to organize these chess tournaments and make sure that they happened and um in kind of sources that you read now afterwards that have been published you see that a lot of you know important communication and in international affairs were um were conducted here and through chess yeah and i personally i i love i mean i love chess history generally but yeah especially the sort of soviet angle because it sort of cuts so deep when you get into as you say like you know people working for the kgb and uh, the collusion that you know definitely happened in some cases and uh you know, the immigration tales, as I often talk about, um, it, it's just it cuts such a sort of um, it casts a, a long shadow in terms of uh, it goes beyond chess. So I, I love it as well. Do you have any favorite resources, anything you read or watched that that you would recommend to listeners? Um, I mean, one of my favorite books is Endgame by Frank Brady. I think it's a uh it's an incredible book. It's done very well. Um, as well as it actually was done by the champions chess tour when, uh, 
David Howell went to Iceland and like visited Bobby Fischer's grave. They did like a whole video on on that, and it was actually extremely well produced. I I I really enjoyed it. Um, if if people want to learn more about chess history, I would obviously say just honestly start online. There's so many resources, um, especially because it's funny chess historians like in academia itself uh, in the academic community there are not many there aren't really at all any historians that are employed by universities that um, actually study chess and chess history and publish papers on it but there are chess historians really everywhere um, publishing online I know Edward Winter is one of them uh, he has a lot of great resources I love just kind of going through his website and seeing what I can find yeah yeah fantastic it's called uh chess notes yeah and uh yeah and definitely echo the end game recommendation which is a bobby fisher biography um and i interviewed uh frank brady and discussed that book among other things a, a couple years back and profile of a prodigy is worth reading as well although um i do like end game a bit better um so yeah it's it's fascinating stuff and so as you say unfortunately there aren't any sort of practicing professional chess historians, even though there's plenty of people uh, devoting many hours to it and sharing lots of uh, worthwhile knowledge. But are you I know. So I know you you've written in the past sort of for your accreditation about chess. Are you able to continue doing that right now while you pursue your master's? Yeah. So I actually will be writing my uh, master's thesis on uh, chess history and uh, how much chess is like as a popular culture is important to politics um and it'll kind of take it has to be an interdisciplinary thesis so it'll be both historical and uh, a modern day analysis as well but um hopefully once that is done and published eventually i would like to get my phd uh maybe not right after my master's uh especially if women in chess is successful but um i would like to get my phd i think that chess and popular culture as uh, a tool of analysis um, for understanding broader topics like politics or economics is um, really important nowadays, for sure. Yeah. And, and Amelia, you're a great photographer as well. You've at these tournaments that you've attended, you've shared some amazing pictures um, online. How did that interest come about? Um, it happened by accident, actually, in Sitches. I had brought my camera, and uh, I think Dodgy was playing, and Lula was streaming, and so I had some some extra time to kill, and I was just walking around with my camera and taking photos and kind of forgot how much I loved photography. I did it for... Um, in high school, I did it for four years. I have a certificate of artistry in media arts from the National Arts Foundation. And um, I was like, oh, I, I forgot how much I like this. And so um, I started taking photos and started um, going to tournaments, uh, both to take photos for my thesis and because um, I was also doing thesis interviews at the time with the players uh, for like my qualitative uh mandatory requirement and so i would take photos as well and then i ended up being asked to go to a few tournaments and it was uh i was like oh this is fun yeah that's awesome well hopefully you can continue to to find time for that as well and lastly Amelia, so you're going to be followed on this podcast by an interview with craig dubose who's running tournaments in ireland um and i found it interesting you know someone that's obviously passionate about chess um, he also he got into it more in the past few years, like yourself, um, but also like yourself, like playing is or let alone like studying and pursuing improvement is almost secondary to what he's doing. I mean, he's giving this sort of gift to the community by trying to run one really good tournament per year. And you're doing the same thing, perhaps e even at a broader scale, attempting at a global scale um, by making making the chess world more welcoming for everyone. So what I'm wondering is like, where do, does playing fit into it for you? Do you play much? And if not, what makes you uh, more interested in these other aspects of the game? Yeah, I love playing chess, actually. I 
but I play very casually. Um, I actually play at my local coffee shop here in Vienna. One of my, a few of my really good friends, uh, I'll play chess. So we all gather there to play. Um, I don't play online or uh, in tournaments or anything, um, but I do enjoy the game a lot. And I really love watching chess. Like I, I like watching, you know, the top level play and trying to think how they think. Um, and so I really do love the game, but it definitely is secondary for me. Um, I think I love the community just like a tad bit more. I, um, in going to these tournaments have met so many amazing people and, um, and that kind of competitiveness of, you know, wanting to play in tournaments just isn't there, but rather I just kind of love the sport and love the people and like hanging out and, and, trying to give back to them as much as I can for giving me a, a space where I feel like I can be myself. Well, I'm glad to hear that, you know, because obviously you, you rightfully highlighted some negative aspects of the chess community in terms of like um, the, the male to female gender ratio and just feeling feelings of not necessarily being welcome. So how do you sort of, on the one hand, it sounds like you felt very welcome, but then there are these other situations where you don't feel welcome, but on balance, it's enough where it didn't just push you out of the chess world as has happened to many females over time. So do you think that's something in your personality that keeps you coming back? Or why do you think it is that you, despite some negative things, found enough good to to devote a lot of time, obviously, uh, to bettering the chess world? Oh, that's a deep question. Um, I think that... I think maybe part of it is my personality. I think just from my childhood and my upbringing, I always kind of felt like the odd one out. And so even though like I've had these negative experiences, my positive experiences, especially I really owe a lot of it to like my friendships with Lula and Dodgy and just how deep it runs and how, much like we all care about each other and that significantly outweighs like any negative experiences that I've had. But also I will say I haven't had any, I haven't had any like as bad of an experience as other women have. And so I am in a way grateful for that because I feel like being able to see it, with my eyes, I can, you know, help them and try to solve this problem because I think that that care and that community that just doesn't really exist anywhere else can really flourish if we do like solve this problem and has made me want to stay. And hopefully as young girls um, are coming up through uh, chess, like even though I've had some negative experiences, not as bad as others, I can hopefully make the community a better place for them. I love it. Glad to hear it. So, Amelia, what's the URL again for the Women in Chess Foundation? It is www.womeninchess.com. Okay, excellent. And you're on Twitter. Anything else that uh, listeners should be tuned into before we say goodbye? Um, nope, just uh, I'm on Twitter. So is Women in Chess. Um and we are looking forward to having anyone and everyone join us. Okay. And thank you again for doing it. And yeah, I'll link to any relevant uh, websites and social media and all that stuff for, for people listening in their cars and such. But Amelia, really appreciate it. Um, wish you great luck with this uh, project. And and please continue to let me know what I can do to uh, to help out. For sure. Thank you. I appreciate your support. Please stay tuned for my interview with Craig DuBose about how to run a weekend chess tournament. We'll be back after the break. And we are back. And we are here with Craig DuBose. Craig is a dad, a tournament organizer, uh, based in Sligo in the Republic of Ireland. He's running a weekend tournament called the Sligo Tournament, February 2nd to February 4th, 2024. He's really working hard to get the word out about this tournament and to differentiate it from a lot of tournaments, not just in Europe, uh, but everywhere. He even made a documentary that I really enjoyed about last year's event. And I'd just like to get some more perspective 
from what a young, ambitious tournament organizer has in mind to improve the tournament landscape. So let's welcome Craig to the show. Welcome, Craig. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. And, and young. Wow. Thank you very much. You, you, <laughs> I'm definitely on your side now. <laughs> yep. Got to butter up the guests. Ask uh, me anything. <laughs> yep. Okay. Well, Craig, I'm I'm really happy to have you. And I really admire all the work you're putting in. You reached out to me a couple of times. And once, once you got my attention and I took a look at what you were doing, I was super impressed. And I've said many times on the show that people like tournament organizers and local chess club facilitators are often the unsung heroes among many unsung heroes in, in the chess world. So I'm happy to help spotlight what you're doing. And also just from a personal standpoint, after watching the documentary, I wish Ireland weren't so far away and that my family circumstances allowed me to come play because the tournament looks amazing. So let me ask you, Craig, I mean, you're doing all this outreach, laying all this groundwork for a tournament that's over, you know, in five rounds, over in one weekend. So what is your why? What motivates you to work that hard to put on this annual event? Um, you know, obviously, I'm a newcomer to the chess world somewhat. Um, I got involved during the pandemic. Um, but but I think, you know, ultimately, and, and I'm just an organizer. That's that's the kind of person I am. I'm, I'm an organizer, administrator, the person who just kind of decides he wants to do something and, and, then, and then just does it. Um, and the the reason I, I put so much work and effort and and, uh, and things into this is because I just want to be a great product. I want it to be a great experience. I, I I'm I've made a tournament, or not just myself. There are others as well, but we we've created a tournament that I would want to attend, um, and that has all these little extra bits and pieces that that just make it a you know what I describe as a, a premium experience for players. So I think that's just it. It's it's pride. It's pride of of wanting to do something great. And at the end of the day, having something amazing. Um, and then, of course, the feedback and people say, that's, you know, we had a great time. This is a great tournament. Keep it up. That sort of thing. Um, it's, it's I guess it's it's probably ego to some to some degree. But um, but I guess the nice way of saying that is I just want to make a great product and something I can be proud of. Right. Well, you say it's ego, but there's also a selflessness involved, because if you do have a great product, then people get a good experience um out of it which which is a win-win and you mentioned in some materials you sent me craig that part of your motivation also was to help people bridge the gap from playing online to going and having a pleasant experience at tournaments now did you have personal experience sort of uh trying to trying to cross that bridge yourself um i, I mean my my first term experience um was, was down in a place called ennis um here in ireland down in the south and it's it's great it's probably like a lot of tournaments that, that people are used to and and honestly and it, it could have been anywhere it could have been in, the, in a in a it could have been a, in a cargo container it could have been outside under a bridge it just playing the chess 90 minutes across from somebody else serious game i mean that was amazing to me and and honestly i probably wouldn't even noticed what was going on around me it was it was i just had a great time um so no, I, I wouldn't say I had a bad experience, but kind of seeing that, seeing tournaments in general, uh, not just in Ireland but but in other places, um, and and online presence and and social media, I just looked at it and thought, you know what, uh, we I could do something here. I could I could I could make an impact. I could I could make um um do do things a little bit higher level in, in to some degree. So no, it wasn't that I had a bad experience. I had, I had a great experience, but but. Again, I initially thought I was going to play in the tournament. When the first year, I thought, oh, I'll make this, I'll bring this FIDE rated, IC rated thing to Sligo, and then I'll play in it. Um, it wasn't until later on in the process that I realized I'm not going to be able to play in this. <laughs> There's going to be too many, too many things going on during the event. And, um, you know, to really make it come off, I need to to be just kind of on the sidelines, making making things move correctly. So, uh, so yeah, I, I think, as you said, as you alluded to, you know, there's a challenge, I think, in, in the world of chess that there's there's all this great intake um, online. Online chess is very popular, but we need to convert those online people to to over the board players. And I think one of the ways you do that is you you create a great experience. What can what can you offer in person that somebody can't get online? Um, and then you try to accentuate those properties. And and one of the things is is just having you know the little things that we do at our tournament, like um, the little little name. Um, 10 flags with your your name and your flag and your rating um having really nice environment you know we're in a hotel ballroom in a four-star hotel 
It's all very comfortable. It's very nice. There's a social aspect to this. Uh, you know, you have your chess friends that you kind of see on a regular basis. So we just try to, to, to really kind of go after those, those things that we can offer that online can't to try to attract those, those online players um, to, to all over the board play. Yeah, just to highlight a few other things you mentioned in in what you sent me, you've got a photographer, you've got a Twitch streamer, um, as you mentioned, the social dynamic, but also putting on a social event on, uh, I believe it's Saturday night, um, within the weekend, uh, even a first aid team, you mentioned. So let me ask Craig, like, where did you come up with all these ideas? And is there any is there any tournament or field outside of chess that you're you're drawing inspiration from? Um, I mean, I would say that this is this upcoming term is our third one. So so each time you, you learn a little something new. And I, I don't really know. I don't remember where the first A team um, idea came from, but it's, it's a good question. I, I don't really remember. But but as soon as I heard it um, I'm, and there's something called the civil defense here in Ireland, which are kind of a volunteer uh, force related to the, the military. And, the, you know, they have first aid teams that will that will kind of attend your 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 event essentially, as long as you kind of feed them and give them somewhere to hang out. Um, so, you know, when you get 140 players, plus, you know, their 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 families, um, it's anything's possible. Now, now, I'm not so much worried about broken bones or anything like that. There's no fist flying or anything like that. But I, I am concerned about things maybe like, you know, cardiac events or something like that. I don't want to be the one, you know, doing CPR, essentially. Um, right. I want a professional there. And, and, you know, I want people to feel comfortable that if something does happen, there is a professional there to to help with that. In terms of some of the other things, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, social media, obviously, we're all aware about, um, you know, so it, that didn't require a lot of investigation. That just, hey, we need to we need we need to have some social media attached to this. The documentary, certainly, I drew uh, inspiration from uh, Welcome to Wrexham, which is which is popular at the moment. I'm not sure if you're familiar familiar with that. Um, no. Well, it, it's a it's a it's a documentary on Netflix um, following the Wrexham football team, uh, Ryan Fields okay. and and Mac, uh, Rob McLarney bought okay. this team in Wales. Anyways, and there's also another documentary called Word Wars. It was about Scrabble from decades ago. The point is that that these documentaries they're not following the top flight of their sport. You know, um, Word Wars were were you know Word Wars is about Scrabble. Yeah, scrabble. and and welcome Wrexham is about um, a team trying to get into the football league, which is the lower levels of of English football. So what that all told, tell, what all those 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 two documents told me was that you don't need to be Magnus Carlsen to be to have something interesting to say about chess. Um, you know, you can be kind of a lower level sort of thing. It's the characters that that drive this. It's it's getting people invested in the story. Um, that is is sort of what can make a document interesting. So, anyways. I thought, would that be great if we did something like that? Some, you know, some someone following the tournament for the weekend, and and essentially kind of reached out to the right people and, and made that happen. Um, yeah, I mean, all, all that sort of stuff is, you know, innovation. Like you say, photographer. Our 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 tagline, if I can go on a little bit, is making making people feel like, making players feel like professionals. You know, we want to treat everyone like like they're like they're Magnus Carlson. If I can if I can use that analogy. Um, we have a photographer. He tries to get a snap, a candid photograph of everybody playing of them playing their their games, because that's not often something people get. You know, you you maybe you take a a photograph with some people at some point, but you studying the board, honest photographer, uh, personal professional photograph of yourself. That's just a nice thing to have to take away with. So that and and a bunch of other things too. Yes, that I'm sure maybe we we might touch on later. Or you know, we try to differentiate ourselves from the term by offering that premium experience. Excellent. And you mentioned in the documentary, you learned some lessons in prior versions of, of the tournament. Can you think of anything specific, either from year one or year two, where when you after it was over, you thought, wow, I, I really need to adjust how we do such and such? Um, well, I mean, the big thing from the documentary was and, and, you know, the documentary. We talk about it in the documentary, but in, in the Blitz tie breaks in the documentary, um, there was a lot of fallout from that after the after the event, um, you know, people onto sponsors and, you know, threatening to contact FIDE and, and you know, things of this nature, things that were that are giving me sleepless nights. Can you explain honest. the context for, for listeners? Um, sure. The context. If, so if you watch the documentary, you'll, you'll get you'll get a, um, a taste of this. Basically, 
in the terms of the in the of the uh, of the event on the website, it said um, if there's a tie between first, second, and third, then there will be a blitz playoff, two blitz, three plus two games to decide to differentiate first, second, and third. Now, people didn't. Some people didn't know that basically, and so one guy, the guy who's in the documentary, he quickly offered a draw in the fifth round with his opponent, thinking then that if he gets around with this uh, a draw with this guy, then he'd be the you know. They'll be they'll be tied on points, but he'll win because of whatever reasons uh, the Bukal stuff. Um, he didn't realize it was it was blitz tiebreak, and then when he looked, he realized who he was playing, and this this young guy was really good at blitz. He might not have done that if he had realized it was going to be a blitz game. He wouldn't have offered a draw. So right. so put himself in a bad situation. There were some others that I won't go into that that were even perhaps even more emotional, but people just not realizing that it was be blitz playoffs. And a lot of bad feeling after the tournament and a lot of fallout that I had to deal with. So, yes, it was in the terms. It was on the website. It was all there to be seen. Um, again, like I said in the documentary, if if I would realized what was coming, I would have taken the 10 seconds to say, hey, everybody, you know, if you're tied on first second, or third, it's going to be a blitz playoff and, yeah. and save myself the headache. Um, but, you know, some of these things are, are you know, like in, like in anything in life, experience is sometimes hard won and you just got to take your licks and 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 learn from it and move on. Tie breaks are always so contentious, <laughs> whether it be like, you know, the top level and the candidates and stuff. People, chess players love to argue about tie break systems, myself included. So, yeah. And, and you know, the the our, our arbiter um, column in, in the in the documentary points out the first thing he says is there is no fair tie break. The, you know, there are just different ways to separate first, second and third or, or whoever. There's just they're not intrinsically fair. None of them are. It's just yeah. you pick one and go with it. Um, so, you know, it, it, it is what it is. Yeah. And so you had Grandmaster Alex Baboran, who, of course, uh, Soviet emigre, but uh, Irish stalwart, been around for forever, used to, I think, I think it's no longer active, wrote a great chess newsletter for, for many years. Um, is it, and you had many, uh, like a handful of other titled players as well. Is that a priority for you or is it more just put on the best event and whoever shows up, shows up? Yeah, it, it's not a top priority. Um, you know, it is something that that gives the, the tournament a bit more gravitas. So I'm not, you know, if if I had the choice between, you know, if someone said you could have all title players, um, or 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 not, or you could just have you know some and then and you know your your kind of unrated players as well, I I would want the whole range. I, I would not, you know, this is for the you know your yes title players obviously. But this is also for your 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 common man, as it were, or woman. Um, you know, we want everyone to have a great experience. And that's why we have four sections, you know, under twelve hundreds and and uh, through the whole range. So yeah, it, it's I, I reach out to, to um, title players, and obviously some I am going after, um, but it's not a top priority. It's something that we that I that we kind of do, but it's not it's not the whole point. Um, right, and obviously this is. Uh, a relatively small scale event, you know, first place is in the neighborhood of uh, $1,000 slash euros slash pounds. Um, how, are there discussions about conditions when you reach out to titled players? Like, are, do you have to offer them anything on top of that? Or is it more just a, a matter of making a connection? Um, I, I wouldn't want to go into the details, um, but but sure, I mean, there are conditions generally. Uh, it depends, obviously. You know, the, the higher title that you are, the the more I'm I'm willing to to offer you something. Um, but but yeah, I mean that's that's just part of the game. And in fact, you know, um, FIDE helped us out last year with with a bit of with a bit of money. And you know, part of their thing is here's some grant money, but in return, you know, we want you to help feed the you know the the, the mid-level title players maybe not maybe not fms but like your, your double gms you know your your ims your your gms those kind of level players you know the super gms obviously they've got their own stuff going on they've got they've got money coming in they're fine right but sort of what my friend described as and I, this is not insult i hope this doesn't come across but he what he described to me as the the burger king gms huh. the gms out there who who travel around playing tournaments and basically end up making sort of a minimum wage sort of thing um, so yeah, I mean, I want to help them out. I want to be part of the ecosystem that allows these, these people to exist. Um, and again, and I'd say also particularly to women players. Yeah. So when we talk about conditions, 
Um, we talk about GMs, WGMs, IMs, WMs. I treat GMs and WGMs the same. So, so whatever I'm willing to offer GM, I'm willing to offer WGM, and that's that's try to what we try to do to kind of, you know, all the all the all the things in place to make to help women and and to promote women and get more women involved. That's what I do as part of what I do to to try to make that happen. Okay, yeah, that's that's awesome and admirable. And Craig, you told me we had chatted a bit last week, just sort of a warm up chat, and you mentioned that all this is done on a nonprofit basis. Could you could you speak a little about sort of the um, the profit motive or lack thereof, and how that uh, philosophy came to be in running this tournament? Sure. Honestly, I, I it just never even occurred to me to 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 try to make a profit. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's that's my fault. Um, but I just, you know, for me, as I said at the beginning, it's an ego thing. It's about making the best possible product rather than making money. I mean, what could I really pay myself and and have a good tournament? It wouldn't be a lot of money. Um, and and so I would much rather. And by the way, you know, there's lots of other people contributing to this that don't get paid. Uh, I'm not the only one. So you know, there's a bunch of people all pulling in the same direction, all with the desire just to have an amazing tournament um, for for people. And, and it's, again, it's just, it's not, I mean, some people get paid, obviously, you know, the photographer, uh, the graphic artist, you know, these, the, 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 the Twitch streamer, they get paid, but there are plenty of us who don't. And again, it's just, it's, I think it's just, we want to put the best possible uh, event together and, and put a good light on Irish chess and, and put a great event out for, for all the players and and for all the people who, who come here from abroad to play the, the event as well. Really, it's a, it's extremely generous. And let me ask Greg. I'm just curious for about the nuts and bolts. Say, say that because you're doing such a good job marketing, and because you're generating positive word of mouth about the tournament, that the number of entrants doubles. Now, I assume some of the money goes back into the prize fund. But if you do end up generating excess revenue, like, first of all, obviously, I think you're entitled to it. But from what you say, that's not your, uh, that's not your model. So so what would happen with with the excess revenue? Sure. So first of all, that would be one of the, what we call a, a good problem. Right. Uh, and, and long may that come on. Um, I think without having really ever thought about this, um, if I had any excess money, I, I think what we would do is we'd buy smart boards because last year we had i think 31 smart boards um and again we didn't th- that covered the whole master section and then we spread the rest across the other three sections so every section had uh i don't so we had 11 boards in the master section so then we had another 20 across the other three sections so so the top five six seven boards even in lower sections had were smart boards now in my mind you know ultimately the goal is Every board being a smart board, every every board being transmitted, game being transmitted online and being available as a PGN for both players um, as the game as soon as the game ends. So so if I had extra money, then then I would just if I that I didn't need maybe maybe you know maybe we take a bit to dinner or something like that. Right. Um, but after that, it would be buy smart boards so that one day every single game would be played on a smart board. Okay. That, yeah, that makes sense. I, and, you know, this podcast has been going for a while. And obviously, I'm friendly with the people down in Charlotte at the Charlotte Chess Center. And I remember years ago when they were, people would say, why don't you have DGT boards? And they just they just weren't there yet. And now they do. Um, so again, um, ad- admire your willingness to sort of reinvest. Now, Craig, as I think about what uh, what you've built over these first couple years, if I try to put myself in the shoes of someone like starting from scratch, to me, the one of the first friction points and possibly biggest is like where to have the tournament and how much to pay for it. Now, obviously, once you have a relationship in place, that's probably not as big a headache um, as as some other things. But in your first edition, when you you know, you can't have a tournament without a place to play. So what were those initial conversations like with hotels or banquet halls or whatever it may have been aside from the beautiful looking hotel where you've ended up? Sure. So the first, the the first year was a hotel, which we we no longer are associated with. The second year was the hotel that we'll be doing the third year. And hopefully going forward, we'll be at hotel. Um, You know, for us, we had, you know, starting out with having, knowing nothing, um, I got received a lot of advice from the Irish Chess Union. So I reached out to our national governing body. They put me in contact with our tournament director, uh, 
Alex Baburn's son, Ivan Baburn. Um, and so him and I had some some Zoom calls kind of every few weeks as I kind of got myself going, tried to understand what I, what I need to do, um, what was what what needed to happen. Um, and I, again, I, I it's been so long, I don't recall what actually brought me to our initial hotel. Um, but I, I did think, oh, I'll tell you what, the first thing we were going to do, we were going to do it at the, the local university. And then that kind of that kind of wasn't really working. So then we switched to the hotel because there'd been an event there many, many years before a chess event. Um, so and once they said yes, and I understood the prices and I kind of had a reason, uh, an idea of the budget, what it might be if we had 100 people, I said, OK, well, that's fine. We can do it here. Um, so it was just, you know, I, I said, we're going to get 100 players, hopefully, fingers crossed. And I budgeted off of that. And, and then I kind of wrote down, I created a budget, said, okay, well, we need this much for the venue. We need to pay, you know, this person and this person, and we'll need this for that. And then I came with a budget and then within, and then that was my, that was my, my Bible, if you will. That's, that's how I, that's how I kind of done my reference for whatever I could and couldn't do. So you kind of have your, I'd love to do this, but this has to happen first. So if we get down to this much, if we have this much money, we can do this, but if we have this much money, we can do that as well. And and you just kind of kind of give and take um, as as you as you realize how much money you are or or not going to have. Um, I will say in terms of venues, at least in Ireland, um, you know, I, I definitely wanted to have it in the ballroom, you know, to have a nice, comfortable, spacious area. Um, but the the problem there is that you're then competing with weddings, right? And and that is that is why you know why we ended up in a, in a new hotel. And it's why now that I've got my claws in there, I will never let go. And it's also why it's in February, because that's not wedding season necessarily. So th- I can never beat out a wedding for at a hotel because they, they'll bring in more money. So all I can do now is kind of develop this relationship I have with the hotel um, and and just, just hold on for dear life that they don't throw me out, basically. Okay. And do you mind, um, feel free to not answer. I mean, just thinking about weddings, I think of the astronomical amount of money <laughs> my, my wife and I spent, you know, which I mean, I, it's not, wasn't some lavish wedding, but it's just, it's always a lot of money to uh, sure. to, to pay for a wedding. Um, so that actually, I hadn't made that connection, but that gives me a personal ballpark. But are, are you able to get into any more specifics about like how much it costs to rent a hotel for a weekend, general ballpark, or would you rather not say? No, no. I, I well, I, I, I should know. Uh, <laughs> I, I think, oh, it must be in the sort of fifteen to to two fifteen hundred to two thousand range. Okay, for, for the just for the ballroom, um, you know, there might be another room or two that we need to rent um, for like an, for an analysis room, but in in that sort of region there. Um, okay. Now, there are other tournaments who have great relationships with, with local uh, hotels. Like down in Ennis, I know you know they pay way, way, way less. Although they don't get a ballroom, um, so so ballroom is definitely the higher end way to go. Um, but you know, in in our opinion, it's it's worth it. And and by the way, the Diamond Coast Hotel where the tournament is, great hotel, great people, and and you know a lot of people raved about about the hotel and venue and and the playing space. Okay, and are there negotiations around the number of people that wind up staying at the hotel, or is that and like discount rates for the guests, or is that just kind of implicit with with the whole thing? Um, I mean, there's negotiations in the sense that I say we need some discounted rooms, please, and they mm-hmm. say, okay, here's how many you get, and I say, can we have some more, and they say, we'll see. Okay. So you know, at this point, the more my goal for this year is to, to try to fill the hotel with just chess players. So there's there's 99 rooms in the hotel. I think maybe six are booked out to other people at the moment. And if I can get everybody else to rent a room, all the other players to rent rooms, then that would be amazing because that allows us to do a few extra, a few more interesting things. The space becomes ours. The whole space in the hotel becomes ours in a sense. You know, if if 99 percent of the people in the hotel are are playing the tournament, I'm a little bit freer to kind of put things maybe in the lobby or, or or something like that. So so that's definitely a goal for this year is to is to pack the the hotel um if if possible. And yes, there are discounted rates um but that at the moment that that number is limited. Um so that's why I'm trying to encourage people to 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 book as soon as possible so they they do get that rate. When we come back, Craig will share his advice for how to start to run your own chess tournament as well as a few final thoughts. We'll be right back. And we are back. 
As we wrap up, Craig, a couple of things I'd like to hear more about. Number one, going to ask you for some closing advice for people who maybe are a few years behind your timeline. And two, just like to get into your own chest a little bit before we say goodbye. So, um, so number one, if if someone's listening to this and is inspired by you and wants to run their own tournament, whether it be in the U.S. or elsewhere in Europe or wherever it may be, shout out to the person from Australia who sent me some games today. I love that there's people from all over and the, the chess uh, reaches so many places. Um, what advice would you give for getting started like um, for a potential organizer? My advice is just, it's like anything. It's like, just get started. Just, you know, decide you're going to do it, pick a date, find a venue, um, work out a budget, you know, make sure that all, that all kind of makes sense financially and then just do it um, and, and do your best. And then at the end of it, evaluate what happened, maybe send out some questionnaires, see what the players thought. And then, and, 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 and you'll know some things you did wrong or could have done better anyway, but, but just do it. And then once you've done it, you'll, you'll make it better the next time. And then after that, make it even better after that time. And and you know the, these things will kind of they'll evolve naturally. So so I wouldn't worry too much about year three and four when you're getting started. Do it, just do it, and and you'll learn on on the job. And and do your best, and 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 then just you know real have a culture of improvement, and and do your best to to make it better every year. And 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 the people will come. Okay, like working on your chess game. Um, yeah. And we and we have a question from a Patreon supporter of the pod. This is from Chris Wainscott, who I know has worked as a tournament director and does a lot of stuff in his community in Wisconsin. And Chris asks, he says, uh, Craig, with so many chess projects, it always seems as though they're one person away from falling apart. If one person, I think he means you, is no longer able or willing to participate, that's often the death of the project. Are you putting protections in place so that doesn't happen to your initiative? Certainly, I agree that that yes, there's usually a driving force, and if that that person no exists, then it probably will fall apart. I wouldn't say I put any protections in place. It it is something I think about. Um, you know, we've we've had some tournament, some big tournaments here in in Ireland, um, particularly one called Bunratty, which was incredibly yeah. popular. Um, was and, that the one in like the like a distillery or something? Oh, a castle. Okay, castle Bunratty Castle. Okay, and you know, you, you get loads and loads of of gms and high-rated players lots of them so many um now their their thing was it's not fide rated and it's kind of a i, mean, I don't want to say it let's say let's i don't want to say drinking but just say a very, a very social event right um so that was their vibe um and Maybe that's why got, i thought it was in a distillery <laughs> yeah 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 they got knocked back i think because of covid and then the hotel had repairs and then I don't know. So, so they seem to be dying a death, but, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the, you know, the, your, your, your patron score is right. That is the case. And it's something I think about, but it's not something I've done anything about the moment. Um, I think really, I, you know, there was somebody I could pass it on to, but I haven't really kind of put in, in, in installed systems in place so that this would continue on without me. Um, but it is something I think about and, and, Hopefully it was something I will kind of um, put more effort to in, in the future. Great. Okay. And and yeah, we'll try to do an interview or two uh, with a participant in the tournament once it's all over in February. Obviously, anyone listening in a proximate area should definitely go uh, and check out Sligo, as I definitely would if I were uh, on the same continent. So in closing, Craig, I mean, obviously this, along with your family and professional responsibilities, has to keep you plenty busy. Um, does this sort of take the place of actually playing chess for you, or are you able to get still get some games in? I, I do occasionally get to play. Um, not as much as if I was a 20-year-old unmarried man, I suspect. Right. Um, but, you know, we had the Irish Chess Union AGM a few weeks ago, and I thought, well, I kind of want to go. And then I was like, oh, well, I'll, I'll pick Dublin, by the way, is about a three, two, two and a half hour drive from, from Sligo. And I thought, okay, well, uh, it's a long drive just for that. Okay, but they've got a rapid tournament just before the AGM. All right, I need, I need to go to this sports store and pick some stuff up. Okay, great. So if I do all that stuff, then it's it kind of becomes worthwhile. And so I went, played in this rapid tournament, had a good time, um, went to the AGM and, and then drove home. Again, occasionally, you know, I brought my family with me to Ennis last time they had a tournament. We, you know, my kids' first time staying in a hotel, so they 
they love that right of course uh, and i got i got to play in in some chess games um while they were doing whatever they were doing so again it's 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 not easy uh you know you've got to kind of really make things try to work for that uh you know it has to be a special occasion but yeah occasionally i still get you know a tournament here and there here or there Glad to hear it, as it should be. And last thing before we say goodbye, Craig, I just realized when we chatted last week, you explained your personal background to me, but listeners may be noting your distinct lack of Irish accent. So yeah, sure. uh, could you explain your- It's not your, a your, accent, no, no. Could you explain your uh, personal background? Sure. So so my, I, my father was uh, officer in the United States Air Force, and so, and my mother's British, so I'm, I'm American and British citizen, dual citizen. And I was born in the UK, US, UK, UK, back and forth my whole life, basically. Um, mostly from Virginia, um, shout out UVA. Um, but I ended up kind of in, in England um, in, my, in my late 20s, early 30s, which is when I met my wife, um, who's Irish, and she's from, from Sligo. So we got married, kids, and then she wanted to come back to Ireland. I, you know... Wherever I lay my hat, that's my home, as I say, because I lived up kind of a, a transient um, lifestyle as a kid. So I'm I'm comfortable wherever. So we came back to Sligo, and and um, so yeah, we live in Sligo, Ireland, and and um, and that's why I have an American accent. Okay, yeah, and it looks beautiful in the pictures. So um, I have have to come visit you someday, Craig. Um, then there's an, oh, the, free entry. That's the condi- that's your conditions. I'm calling right now. <laughs> free entry, no problem. All right, listeners, you heard that, right? Um, <laughs> okay, well, Craig, thanks a lot, and really just want to say thank you on behalf of the chess community, and thanks to so many other people. I can't interview everyone, obviously, but there's so many unsung heroes that, that make the chess world go, and uh, really appreciate. Uh, all of the efforts that you and so many others are doing to improve the chess world. So thank you, Craig. Oh, no problem, Ben. It's my uh, my pleasure. And, and again, I, if I didn't if I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't do it. All right. Well, thanks. And uh, hopefully um, you'll catch a few listeners in Sligo in February 2024. Hopefully. Hope, look forward to seeing them there. OK. Take care, Craig. OK. Thanks, Ben. Podcast Network.